Welcome to another episode of Ed Luminaries with Alejandra Zertuche, CEO of Enflux, who brings you powerful educator perspectives hailing from all walks of life. Get inspired and obtain great takeaways that you can apply to help set your students up for success. Sometimes all it takes is to hear how innovative educators approach similar problems and overcome obstacles to support breakthrough academic success. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Alejandra Sertuche and you're listening to the Ed Luminaries podcast, where we talk with educational leaders to find out how they're thinking and working creatively to drive student success. In today's episode, of the role of educational technology in promoting evidence-based decision-making, we will discuss the use of technology to support teaching and learning in a variety of educational settings. This includes software as the learning management systems and some assessment tools that are out there and educational apps. EdTech aims to enhance the learning process by providing engaging and interactive experiences for students while also improving the efficiency and effectiveness of teaching by providing tools to manage classroom and track student progress. It can also help uh, to bridge gaps in access to education by providing remote or distance learning options. Today in, in our podcast, we have a very special guest, Dr. Edward Williams, a distinguished physician assistant with years of experience in family practice in a remarkable 22 years of military service. He currently serves as the chair and program director for physician assistant studies at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. We are thrilled to have this accomplished individual on our show to share his valuable insights and expertise with us. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. As I was saying, I am really honored to be on a, on, a, on a podcast like this with some of the guests that you've had in the past that have been pretty fantastic. So thank you for including me in that list. And I'll try to live up to, uh, to your expectations today. <laughs> it's our pleasure to have you in the podcast. Um, Dr. Williams, before we start, can you tell us a little bit more about your unique background? It's a really interesting background and how you became interested in physician assistant education. I will be brief, but, uh, you know, I, I grew up uh, most of my life in Montgomery, Alabama with a single mother and my mom, and uh, I knew I wanted to get into healthcare uh, from an early age, and so that's what I strive for. Not too well in high school as far as academics, but um, I realized that I needed to join the military because that was the thing for me. I didn't think I was ready for college, so I did. In 1991, I joined the Army as an Army medic, um, and then... Uh, did that, loved it, got to see a lot of the world. Um, and as I trained as a medic and learned more as a medic, I worked a lot with PAs. Um, and I realized how valuable they were and how much they were interested in teaching me more about medicine. And so I desired at one point to become a PA. So I applied to the um, Inter-Service Physician Assistant Program um, and got in in 2001. Uh, and I graduated from there in 2003. Um, and so once I did that, uh, I was a PA in the Army for about 10 years. I deployed twice to Iraq. Um, and um, when 2013 came around, I retired from the Army. And I was looking for um, a job in education because as a PA, I really learned 
how fascinating teaching is. And I love to learn. I'm one of those people who like to learn a lot. And so I think a lot of your guests in the past talked about how they're lifelong learners. And I think you mentioned that as well. And I feel like those who really enjoy learning automatically gravitate to education. And I feel like that's what I kind of did automatically. I just found a, an affinity for teaching medics and training them to do a lot of the things that I did and they enjoyed it and I got a lot out of it. So um, that's when I was striving to be um, to be an educator in, in the PA education. And so when I got out, an opportunity came available for a faculty member here at a new PA program that was starting here in Arkansas. And I applied and um, been here ever since 2014. I started and uh, went from faculty to clinical director, intern program director, and in 2017, um, program director and chair. And so now it's a lot more administrative work. I would give anything uh, to go back to just being a faculty member and teaching every day, but there's a lot of responsibility and there's a lot of things that can be accomplished in a leadership position as well. That is wonderful. It's a fascinating story. So you have been with the same university for the past, has been um, 17 years, years? Nine, nine years? years. Nine years. Mm -hmm. Wow, nine years. In, in your trajectory in education, what have you seen uh, regarding educational technology? When you first started working at, at the university, what were some of the tools that were utilizing and what has been the kind of the revolution of evolution of technology? You know, it's a, it's a good question because when I look back in 2014 and even before then, when I was doing you know, my non-official teaching the medics and stuff, the main thing that we had was PowerPoints and it was, you know, death by PowerPoint it was everything and all the things about teaching them. Uh, when I got here, there were a lot of younger faculty members that were engaging in things that I never heard of, like um, Respondus, one of those Respondus systems with the little clickers. Sometimes you see them at conferences. Um, and a lot of, oh, there was at least one faculty member who was using that, and I found that fascinating. And I looked there, oh, there's poll everywhere, which is another one. And that's when it started changing, I think, probably for me, at least around 2015, where I realized there's a lot more out there other than just standing in front of somebody and talking through 50, 67 PowerPoints. And um, getting that engagement is something I learned was, was valuable. So from like Poll Everywhere, there's a lot of other things that have come out that I'm sure we'll touch on that have been really good tools, cahoots, and um, some other things that actively, actively engaging um, students, even videos. And um, we use osmosis in, in our classroom as well. Um, as, a, as, as an additional learning tool. And so there's a lot of things that have changed and that's what I've seen from using physical clickers uh, to now everything is basically virtual and can capture all kinds of data on students live you know, and they enjoy the interactivity. Well, you agree that at first, um, maybe the tools were utilized to keep the students engaged. And as we learn how the tools were collecting data, we started getting intrigued on how to collect that data and utilize it to make better decisions. Let's say that one more time, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I was I was asking if, if you would agree that at first when the tools were utilized, like the PowerPoint, the clickers, the responders, and all those different tools about 10 years ago, it was not about collecting data and using it for assessment, but it was mostly for keeping the students engaged. But as we were utilizing them to keep them engaged, we realized we had that aha moment of saying, wait a minute, we're collecting a lot of great data. What can we do with it so that we can make 
better decisions about how we're teaching or delivering the, the content of the course. Absolutely. I think that that is, is a, it's interesting that you make that connection because it's true. Yeah, the clickers were just that. It was just responding. But now it's, it's data mining uh, for students. And I think what's so, what's so exciting about it, like I mentioned, not only are we getting data, but the students are enjoying the engagement process of it. So it's, it, it really is great when you're able to have active learning as a process that students enjoy and don't feel like they're learning, but they're actually feeling like they're just engaging in something that's insightful and fun and, and sometimes competitive, because you know, all students are competitive at some level or another, and, and that makes it um, exciting as well. But yeah, there's been, it's, it's, a, it's a big evolution from just clicking to, uh, to mining. I, I've seen that a lot, that now faculty in different programs are utilizing the data being collected by these tools, these edtech tools, um, by themselves, not because a program director or the dean is asking them to use the data. Uh, what have you seen in your program? How are faculty using some of this data and for what uh, purpose? So um, a lot of data that our faculty get, and some of our faculty are a lot more tech savvy than others. I, I used to think that I was until I got into this role and got older and was younger with a lot more ideas. And, and so I think a lot of what they're using um, this technology for, again, like I said, with Cahoots uh, is one of those, but we've really been very, um, it's been very helpful to use tools like Osmosis, um, and even some of the uh, things like Blackboard or Exam Master and collecting data on students' progress, as well as how they are progressing as far as the knowledge base that they have from the courses and the objectives that we, we have available. So we've, we've really, I think our faculty and our program has done a really good job in pulling a lot of data in. I think we evaluate almost everything. And I know you don't want to over assess things, but I think the things that we do evaluate and assess are critical things, and what to do with that data always becomes a question, and how do we look at that, and how is it presented, and that's that sometimes can be challenging, and it has been for us, um, especially when, you know, I took over, and I wasn't as seasoned of a faculty as, as I would have liked to be, even when I started, but over time, you learn uh, either by trial and error or um, by really realizing, hey, this really works. But it's always, it's, I think, to, to go back to your question, a lot of the stuff we use is, is being applied not only in surveys, but also in exams, as well as the interactivity with these lectures that we have to see what outcomes we're looking for and what we're actually getting and what to make those adjustments. I love the way you said it, that you're evaluating everything, so you're collecting massive amount of data and I think that's one of the challenges that a lot of programs are facing. They, they have great tools, but these tools don't talk to each other. So then the data is being created in silos. And now it's like, what do we do with the data? And not only what do we do with the data, but how do we start putting all the pieces together so that we can get out the whole picture? Um, what are some of your recommendations on how to overcome the challenge of drowning in data but starving for insights, trying to use the the data to make better decisions. From my perspective, and one of the things that I learned, and, I, and I'm talking more from the leadership side of things, is when I when I took over, I found it challenging 
not to know and to be able to do everything that's required within the program. I felt like it was my obligation to be like, you know, the captain of the ship. I know where every bolt is, where every nut is, and I know how to run everything in the system. I quickly learned though, that that is not reality and that having people who have an affinity for certain things are the ones you really want to allow to be able to do those things. So delegation was one of the most important things I learned and taking over this leadership role is that it's okay to give something to someone else that knows what they're doing and how to do it and enjoy it because you get so much more, um, you get a lot more productivity and you get a lot more creativity out of what they do. And so I think that's from, from my perspective, having someone who's dedicated to work on a specific area of assessment is one key thing. And then taking that data and discussing it as a group is, is also important. It is one thing for a person or two people to say, well, let's look at this data and see exactly what does it mean and then put out the information to the rest. We have, um, our, our program does a retreat every year to where we go over all the data for an entire program, didactic, clinical, every course um, and every everything that we have an evaluation for an assessment for, we discuss it after each individual group has done an analysis and kind of made conclusions of here's our strengths, here's our weaknesses, here's what we can improve. And then we all discuss it and kind of come up with short and long-term goals based off of that analysis. But it's a group effort. And I think that works for us to do it as a team uh, rather than siloing things and saying, you just work on this and tell us what we need to do to change things. I think that's been the most beneficial for us as a program. Maybe not fit for everybody, but it works well. And I think it gives a lot of um, engagement and um, a sense of importance um, to each person. I really like the, the, the process of having people that know how to do it and enjoy doing it. Uh, take care of those pieces of assessment that they can help you with, and then presenting that back to the faculty because it's all about team collaboration. It should be collaboration because everyone is involved in the student journey. At mm -hmm. some point of the student journey, each person, each faculty member, each administrator is going to have an interaction with the students. So how to collectively they can come up with um, better ways of serving the students, but also making sure that they're learning and um, optimizing their learning in the program as they go through the program. Um, what I was gonna ask you is, what are some of the challenges or have you faced any challenges on documenting those short and long-term goals or evaluating them? Um, how, do, how do you document all of those um, group discussions and decisions that are made within the group? Yeah, it's it's a pretty, right now we have a pretty rudimentary system. We don't use, but we, we do actually print out these binders that have all the data in it and all of the assessments that were done prior to our retreats. But we also have it digitally, you know, and stored in files and stuff. Um, but I think for the most part, um, we, we collect this data and when we are looking at, okay, now we have it, here's what we think our strengths and our weaknesses are, what are the goals we're going to set short and long term? We, we, all of that's documented and kind of in our assessment folder, but we also do an executive summary that we provide to our dean's office that kind of goes over kind of a, a summarized version of that. And the, 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 the challenge is to re-engage with those goals on a frequent basis. And we try to use SMART goals to make sure that they have um, all of the key elements of, of good goals. 
And so our faculty will present um, the, the didactic team, the clinical team, they'll present. Here's what our short and long-term goals are that we came up with after the retreat. And this is what we've accomplished. And here's what we're accomplishing. Here's the timelines that we have established. Here are some of the obstacles. Here's some of the resources that we'll need. And so all of those things are discussed in the group setting. So everybody knows here's what didactic is doing. Here's what clinical is doing. So that if they feel like, oh, I can help you with this because we're doing this, then it becomes more a collaboration and it, it involves the ability to say, okay, I know everybody knows what I'm doing now, so I got to make sure this is accomplished. And so we've been doing that lately. And I think that is helpful for revisiting those goals and making sure that they are being accomplished either in that year timeframe or in the long-term goals that, that are adjusted. And then we just keep that and refer to it the next year. When we have our next retreat, we bring those back up and say, well, what did we do? How did we accomplish those goals? And it, it really is, um, it's amazing how faculty really work hard to make sure that they can have something very good to say about it or have a reason why they want to accomplish them. That's wonderful. And how does that translate or helps you with the self-study when it's time to do the ARC-PA standards? That's a great question, and we'll see. Uh, when I started this program, uh, we had just, uh, I was here maybe a year or so, 2016, I think, we had just finished our first uh, continuing accreditation status. And so I was here for the for the site visit and all of those things, but I was so new. I barely knew where, which way was left and right. Um, and so now we're coming up for our next site visit in 2026. And so um, we have we've set timelines and we have these goals to accomplish certain things when it comes to the self-study um, to be able to answer those questions on that self-study clearly. Um, and I think having those assessment marker, those assessment checkpoints every year will help us to really be able to have a good summary of it. But we will see um, because it, it, we have lots of new faculty that never been through a site visit. And myself has never been in charge of running the site visit. Our, our former uh, program director, she did a fantastic job in really getting us prepared for that. But, you know, things have changed, time has changed, and accreditation standards have changed as well. So, you know, you can't rely on that anymore. So hopefully um, all of this data we've been collecting, all of the assessments that we've been doing, and all of the, the uh, changes that we've made based off of that assessment um, will be um, helpful for our self-study and satisfactory to ARC. Well, it sounds like you have a great process and that you're documenting everything. So it seems like when you start the self-study, you might not have to go into a treasure hunt that a lot of programs go through because you have everything in one place. Um, and not everything. I know the, the topic of the podcast is about educational technology, but not everything has to be technology. As long as you have a good process in place that is frequently um, monitor, like you said, it's those are some of the challenges because you need reminders to come back and look at the goals and, and evaluate the, the program. But as long as you have everything in one place, that should extremely help the self-study process. Um, a lot of programs go through, not only do they have silo in, in creating data, but also have silo in documentation of what they're doing. And they'll go through some accreditation challenges, not because they're not doing their job, but because they're not documenting it, or they couldn't find um, the evidence of continuous quality improvement or assessment. Um, so now that you're seeing all the technolo technology that is being implemented within the program, what do you think it's the future of educational technology? Where are we heading? 
that's what I'm always excited about. I like, I'm a big science fiction fan and I like gadgets and tech and stuff. And so when the newest thing pops up, it's like, oh, this is something, you know, we always usually have a faculty member that comes across something that they find very, very helpful or useful. And it may not be something that's applicable for the entire program, but it's really helpful for them. I think the future um, lies in a lot of um, telemedicine and telemedicine type technology. I think that's going to be something that continues to be a trend as we find it more and more challenging to have healthcare providers in those areas that they're needed. The telehealth is gonna augment that significantly. So I think we'll also see that in broadening the curriculum a lot more than it has been as well, including ours. I also see um, AI becoming a really integral part of things. Um, well, this chatbot uh, and chat GPT and these other things like BARD and um, I know um, Microsoft has um, one as well. All, all of those things are kind of novel and exciting right now, but, you know, I've, I've read articles where people say, well, you know, we're trying to keep our students from using this and from plagiarizing. I think the better approach, which I've seen, is to find ways to utilize that type of technology, not as a avoidance, but let's see how we can get our students to engage with AI type of um, large language learning type of models and use it to help improve their ability to learn. I think it goes back to just, you know, the idea of it's, it's, it's magic when you can have, make learning be something that's exciting and interesting and fun, as opposed to just sitting there being bored and having to sit and listen to somebody ramble on like myself for hours and hours. And so I really think that this, these um, large language model AI systems are going to be a very key part of um, helping to reduce a lot of the mundane things that faculty do when it comes to assessment and evaluations, um, but also can be something that's a great tool for students to engage and create and learn um, in a different way than we ever did. Um, so that's those are two big things I think: telehealth and uh, and these um, these new AIs that are out. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, someone just mentioned to me recently the story about kind of calculators. When calculators came around, everyone was scared of them because it's like, oh my God, like they're using a machine to do math. What's going to happen to our brain? Well, we we can do more than we used to do before because of that, right? So how do we leverage new technology to not work harder, but work smarter? Um, and, and it's fascinating what is happening out there. I mean, since ChatGPT came, it, we have seen thousands of applications that are being created uh, around AI. So it's fascinating. Um, and Dr. Williams, the other question that I had for you was more around what advice would you give to someone that is looking at implementing edtech so that they can collect the data that they need for decision-making? I think the most important thing is to identify what your needs are. Sometimes it's, you know, we say, oh, we need this thing. And then when you, when you don't actually sit down and decide what is it that you're looking for, what problem are you solving? When you don't do those things and develop, okay, what do we, what do we wanna do with this? I think it has to start from like, really being honest with yourself about what it is that you need and that you're short on and what is it going to do for you in the long run. And I think once you have that answer, then it's about looking around and shopping and, and um, doing your research to discover what resources are out there, what tools are out there that will best 
are best suited for what your needs are and to fill that gap that you identify you're missing. I know that in the past, especially with this program, I've looked at stuff and I've jumped onto things probably a little bit more premature than I wanted to. And then kind of like, okay, I, I really should have did more research. So I think really talking to meeting with and engaging with people who offer tools like yourself and your and your um and your company to find out what you have to offer and how can it help um in the in the short and long term for us. And I think once that happens, once you kind of have it narrowed down to several different things, or maybe just one thing, engaging with that thing and, and ask lots of questions. Make sure you really, and it's, you know, it's also helpful if you can get people that have used it or using it currently and say, hey, how has it been working for you? How has this been helpful for you? And uh, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? And sometimes those firsthand testimonials about their experiences can be helpful, but you shouldn't use that as a 100% thing to use because everybody's different and see things in a little different way. So, I think that's the a great method. It's like, make sure you you understand what the needs are, mm -hmm. ask a lot of questions and evaluate the different tools that you're you're looking at and also ask for feedback, ask other programs what they're utilizing and how they're they're leveraging the tools. Because what I have seen is that if they don't follow that process, they might end up with more needs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the tools might create more needs, more challenges, and now they're looking for another tool that can mm -hmm. help needs oh. or challenges that they didn't have. Or they have this tool and they're not using it to its potential. They're just using, yes. and I can speak from it, from experience, they're just using a third of what it's capable of and they're paying for that 100% but they aren't engaging with the full capacity to use the full potential of it. And so sometimes it's about learning, do I need this whole thing or do I just need one small aspect of this thing and uh, to maximize what you're spending? So I, I think you're absolutely right. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, your insights on the role of ed tech in improving evidence-based decision-making and how to help the students has been incredible um, and incredibly valuable. And I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot more, uh, have learned a lot from your experience. Uh, before we say goodbye, do you have any final thoughts or advice that you would like to share to our listeners? I think the final thought I would like to say is, you know, for those people who may be in the same position I am as a program director, especially for PA education, which I can only speak about, um, network, meet people, get out there, engage with uh, other program directors and and, and have those conversations as frequently as you can. It's so nice to be able to um, lament with other program directors about issues and challenges and understand that it's not just you, it's, this, it's the position that you're in. It took a while for me to do that when I was a new program director. I thought everything was my fault and that it was because of me and not instead of me. But then when I engaged and talked with other faculty or the program directors especially, I learned that, you know, that there's a lot of shared things that we go through in this position. And so... Um, reach out to you know, programs in your in your state, other PA programs, reach out to the program directors, meet with them, talk with them. Um, don't make it be a competition, make it be something that you work collaboratively with. And I think that's going to help our students overall uh, graduate more successfully. That's an excellent advice. Thank you for listening to today's episode on the role of educational technology in promoting evidence-based decision-making. You can subscribe to our events by going to nflux.com and you can also find us on LinkedIn where we post announcements about our solution and resources like today's session. I'm Alejandra Sertuche and you have been listening to Ed Luminaries. You've 
just listened to Ed Luminaries, inspiring stories and ideas from educators to educators with Alejandra Zertuche. Connect with us at edluminaries.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. 